even the schizo's stroll or voyage does not affect great deterritorializations without borrowing from territorial circuits, the tottering walk of Malloy and his bicycle preserves the mother's room as the vestige of a goal, the vacillating spirals of the Unamable keep the familial tower as an uncertain center where it continues to turn while treading its own underfoot, the infinite series of juxtaposed and unlocalized parks in what still contains a reference to Mr. Knott's house, the only one capable of pushing the soul out of doors, but also of summoning it back to its place. We are all little dogs, we need circuits, and we need to be taken for walks. Even those best able to disconnect, to unplug themselves, enter into connections of desiring machines that reform little earths. Even Gisela Panko's great deterritorialized subjects are led to discover the image of a family castle under the roots of the uprooted tree that crosses through their body without organs. Point 23. Previously, we distinguished two poles of delirium, one as the molecular schizophrenic line of escape, and the other as the paranoiac molar investment. But the perverted pole is equally opposed to the schizophrenic pole just as the reconstitution of territorialities is opposed to the movement of deterritorialization. And if perversion in the narrowest sense of the word performs a certain very specific type of re-territorialization within the artifice, perversion in the broad sense comprises all the types of re-territorializations, not merely artificial, but also exotic, archaic, residual, private, etc., thus Oedipus and psychoanalysis as perversion. Even Raymond Roussel's schizophrenic machines turn into perverse machines in a theater representing Africa. In short, there is no deterritorialization of the flows of schizophrenic desire that is not accompanied by global or local reterritorializations, reterritorializations that always reconstitute shores of representation. What is more, the force and the obstinacy of a deterritorialization can only be evaluated through the types of reterritorialization that represent it the one is the reverse side of the other. Our loves are complexes of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. What we love is always a certain mulatto male or female. The movement of deterritorialization can never be grasped in itself, one can only grasp its indices in relation to the territorial representations. Take the example of dreams, yes, dreams are edible, and this comes as no surprise, since dreams are a perverse re-territorialization in relation to the deterritorialization of sleep and nightmares. But why return to dreams, why turn them into the royal road of desire and the unconscious, when they are in fact the manifestation of a superego, a superpowerful and superarchized ego, the Erzine of the Ur-State? Yet at the heart of dreams themselves as with fantasy and delirium machines function as indices of deterritorialization. In dreams there are always machines endowed with the strange property of passing from hand to hand, of escaping and causing circulations, of carrying and being carried away. The airplane of parental coitus, the father's car, the grandmother's sewing machine, the little brother's bicycle, all objects of flight and theft, stealing and stealing away the machine is always infernal in the family dream. The machine introduces breaks and flows that prevent the dream from being reconfined in its scene and systematized within its representation. It makes the most of an irreducible factor of nonsense, which will develop elsewhere and from without, in the conjunctions of the real as such. Psychoanalysis, with its edible stubbornness, has only a dim understanding of this, 
for one re-territorializes on persons and surroundings, but one deterritorializes on machines. Is it Schreber's father who acts through machines, or on the contrary is it the machines themselves that function through the father? Psychoanalysis settles on the imaginary and structural representatives of re-territorialization, while schizoanalysis follows the machinic indices of deterritorialization. The opposition still holds between the neurotic on the couch as an ultimate and sterile land, the last exhausted colony and the schizo out for a walk in a deterritorialized circuit. The following excerpt from an article by Michel Cornot on Chaplin helps us understand what schizophrenic laughter is, as well as the schizophrenic line of escape or breakthrough, and the process as deterritorialization, with its machinic indices. The moment Charlie Chaplin makes the board fall a second time on his head a psychotic gesture he provokes the spectator's laughter. Yes, but what laughter is this? And what spectator? For example, the question no longer applies at all, at this point in the film, of knowing whether the spectator must see the accident coming or be surprised by it. It is as though the spectator, at that very moment, were no longer in his seat, were no longer in a position to observe things. A kind of perceptive gymnastics has lead him, progressively, not to identify with the character of modern times, but to experience so directly the resistance of the events that he accompanies this character, has the same surprises, the same premonitions, the same habits as he. Thus it is that the famous eating machine, which in a sense, by its excess, is foreign to the film, Chaplin had invented it 22 years before the film, is merely the formal, absolute exercise that prepares for the conduct also psychotic of the worker trapped in the machine, with only his upside-down head sticking out, and who has Chaplin feed him his lunch, since it is lunch time. If laughter is a reaction that takes certain circuits, it can be said that Charlie Chaplin, as the film sequences unfold, progressively displaces the reactions, causes them to recede, level by level, until the moment when the spectator is no longer master of his own circuits, and tends to spontaneously take either a shorter path, which is not passable, which is barred, or else a path that is very explicitly posted as leading nowhere. After having suppressed the spectator as such, Chaplin perverts the laughter, which comes to be like so many short circuits of a disconnected piece of machinery. Critics have occasionally spoken of the pessimism of modern times and of the optimism of the final image. Neither term suits the film. Charles Chaplin in modern times sketches rather, on a very small scale, with a precise stroke, the finished design of several oppressive and fundamental manifestations. The leading character, played by Chaplin, has to be neither active nor passive, neither consenting nor insubordinate, since he is the pencil point that traces the design, he is the stroke itself. That is why the final image is without optimism. One does not see what optimism would be doing at the conclusion of this statement. This man and this woman seen from the back, all black, whose shadows are not projected by any sun, advance toward nothing. The wireless telegraph poles that run along the left side of the road, the barren trees that dot the right side, do not meet at the horizon. There is no horizon. The bald hills facing the spectator only form a line that merges with the void hanging over them. Anyone can see that this man and this woman are no longer alive. There is no pessimism here either. What had to happen happened.
they did not kill each other. They were not brought down by the police. And it will not be necessary to go looking for the alibi of an accident. Charles Chaplin did not dwell on this. He went quickly, as usual. He traced the finished design 24. In its destructive task, schizoanalysis must proceed as quickly as possible, but it can also proceed only with great patience, great care, by successively undoing the representative territorialities and re-territorializations through which a subject passes in his individual history. For there are several layers, several planes of resistance that come from within or are imposed from without. Schizophrenia as a process, deterritorialization as a process, is inseparable from the stasis that interrupt it, or aggravate it, or make it turn in circles, and re-territorialize it into neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. To a point where the process cannot extricate itself, continue on, and reach fulfillment, except insofar as it is capable of creating what exactly, a new land. In each case we must go back by way of old lands, study their nature, their density, we must seek to discover how the machinic indices are grouped on each of these lands that permit going beyond them. How can we reconquer the process each time, constantly resuming the journey on these lands edible familial lands of neurosis, artificial lands of perversion, clinical lands of psychosis? In search of lost time as a great enterprise of schizoanalysis, all the planes are traversed until their molecular line of escape is reached, their schizophrenic breakthrough, thus in the kiss where Albertine's face jumps from one plane of consistency to another, in order to finally come undone in a nebula of molecules. The reader always risks stopping at a given plane and saying yes, that is where Proust is explaining himself. But the narrator spider never ceases undoing webs and planes, resuming the journey, watching for the signs or the indices that operate like machines and that will cause him to go on further. This very movement is humor, black humor. Oh, the narrator does not homestead in the familial and neurotic lands of Oedipus, there where the global and personal connections are established, he does not remain there, he crosses these lands, he desecrates them, he penetrates them, he liquidates even his grandmother with a machine for tying shoes. The perverse lands of homosexuality, where the exclusive disjunctions of women with women, and men with men, are established, likewise break apart in terms of the machinic indices that undermine them. The psychotic earths, with their conjunctions in place, Charles is therefore surely mad, and Albertine too, perhaps, are traversed in their turn to a point where the problem is no longer posed, no longer posed in this way. The narrator continues his own affair, until he reaches the unknown country, his own, the unknown land, which alone is created by his own work in progress, the search of lost time in progress, functioning as a desiring machine capable of collecting and dealing with all the indices. He goes toward these new regions where the connections are always partial and non-personal, the conjunctions nomadic and polyvocal, the disjunctions included, where homosexuality and heterosexuality cannot be distinguished any longer, the world of transverse communications, where the finally conquered non-human sex mingles with the flowers, a new earth where desire functions according to its molecular elements and flows. Such a voyage does not necessarily imply great movements in extension, it becomes immobile, 
in a room and on a body without organs an intensive voyage that undoes all the lands for the benefit of the one it is creating. The patient resumption of the process, or on the contrary its interruption the two are so closely interrelated that they can only be evaluated each within the other. How would the schizo's voyage be possible independent of certain circuits, how could it exist without a land? But inversely, how can we be certain that these circuits don't reconstitute the lands only too well known of the asylum, the artifice, or the family? We always return to the same question, from what does the schizo suffer, he whose sufferings are unspeakable? Does he suffer from the process itself, or rather from its interruptions, when he is neuroticized in the family, in the land of Oedipus, when the one who does not allow himself to be Oedipalized is psychoticized in the land of the asylum, when the one who escapes the family and the asylum is perverted in the artificial locales. Perhaps there is only one illness, neurosis, the Oedipal decay against which all the pathogenic interruptions of the process should be measured. Most of the modern endeavors outpatient centers, inpatient hospitals, social clubs for the sick, family care, institutions, and even anti-psychiatry remain threatened by a common danger, a danger which Jean Ari has been able to analyze in depth, how does one avoid the institutions reforming an asylum structure, or constituting perverse and reformist artificial societies, or residual paternalistic or mothering pseudo-families. We do not have in mind the so-called community psychiatry endeavors, whose admitted purpose is to triangulate, to oedipalize everyone people, animals, and things to a point where we will witness a new race of sick people implore by reaction that they be given back an asylum, or a little Beckettian land, a garbage can, so they can become catatonic in a corner. But in a less openly repressive manner, who says that the family is a good place, a good circuit for the deterritorialized schizo? Such a thing would be very surprising, to say the least, the therapeutic potentialities of the familial surroundings. The whole town, then, the whole neighborhood. What molar unit will constitute a sufficiently nomadic circuit? How does one prevent the unit chosen, even if a specific institution, from constituting a perverted society of tolerance, a mutual aid society that hides the real problems. Will the structure of the institution save it? But how will the structure break its relationship with neuroticizing, perverting, psychoticizing castration? How will this structure produce anything but a subjugated group? How will it give free play to the process, when its entire molar organization has the function of binding the molecular process? Even anti-psychiatry especially sensitive to the schizophrenic breakthrough and the intense voyage tires out and proposes the image of a subject group that would become immediately reprovered, with former schizos guiding the most recent ones, and, as relays, little chapels, or better yet, a convent in Ceylon. The only thing that can save us from these impasses is an effective politicization of psychiatry. And doubtless, with R.D. Lang and David Cooper anti-psychiatry went very far in this direction. But it seems to us that they still conceive of this politicization in terms of the structure and the event, rather than the process itself. Furthermore, they localize social and mental alienation on a single line, and tend to consider them as identical by showing how the familial agent extends the one into the other. Between the two, however, the relationship is rather that of an included disjunction. 
This is because the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows define the very process of capitalism that is, its essence, its tendency, and its external limit. But we know that the process is continually interrupted, or the tendency counteracted, or the limit displaced, by subjective re-territorializations and representations that operate as much at the level of capital as a subject, the axiomatic, as at the level of the persons serving as capital's agents, application of the axiomatic. But we seek in vain to assign social alienation and mental alienation to one side or the other, as long as we establish a relation of exclusion between the two. The deterritorialization of flows in general effectively merges with mental alienation, inasmuch as it includes the re-territorializations that permit it to subsist only as the state of a particular flow, a flow of madness that is defined thus because it is charged with representing whatever escapes the axiomatics and the applications of re-territorialization in other flows. Inversely one can find the form of social alienation in action in all the re-territorializations of capitalism, inasmuch as they keep the flows from escaping the system, and maintain labor in the axiomatic framework of property, and desire in the applied framework of the family, but this social alienation includes in its turn mental alienation, which finds itself represented or re-territorialized in neurosis, perversion, and psychosis, the mental illnesses. A true politics of psychiatry, or anti-psychiatry, would consist therefore in the following praxis, 1 undoing all the re-territorializations that transform madness into mental illness, 2, liberating the schizoid movement of deterritorialization in all the flows, in such a way that this characteristic can no longer qualify a particular residue as a flow of madness, but affects just as well the flows of labor and desire, of production, knowledge, and creation in their most profound tendency. Here, madness would no longer exist as madness, not because it would have been transformed into mental illness, but on the contrary because it would receive the support of all the other flows, including science and art once it is said that madness is called madness and appears as such only because it is deprived of this support, and finds itself reduced to testifying all alone for deterritorialization as a universal process. It is merely its unwarranted privilege, a privilege beyond its capacities, that renders it mad. In this perspective Foucault announced an age when madness would disappear, not because it would be lodged within the controlled space of mental illness, great tepid aquariums, but on the contrary because the exterior limit designated by madness would be overcome by means of other flows escaping control on all sides, and carrying us along. It should therefore be said that one can never go far enough in the direction of deterritorialization, you haven't seen anything yet an irreversible process. And when we consider what there is of a profoundly artificial nature in the perverted re-territorializations, but also in the psychotic re-territorializations of the hospital, or even the familial neurotic re-territorializations, we cry out, more perversion. More artifice. 2. A point where the earth becomes so artificial that the movement of deterritorialization creates of necessity and by itself a new earth. Psychoanalysis is especially satisfying in this regard, its entire perverted practice of the cure consists in transforming familial neurosis into artificial neurosis, of transference, and in exalting the couch, a little island with its commander, the psychoanalyst, as an autonomous territoriality of the ultimate artifice. A little additional effort is enough to overturn everything, 
and to lead us finally toward other far-off places. The schizoanalytic flick of the finger, which restarts the movement, links up again with the tendency, and pushes the simulacra to a point where they cease being artificial images to become indices of the new world. That is what the completion of the process is, not a promised and a pre-existing land, but a world created in the process of its tendency, its coming undone, its deterritorialization. The movement of the theater of cruelty, for it is the only theater of production, there where the flows cross the threshold of deterritorialization and produce the new land not at all a hope, but a simple finding, a finished design, where the person who escapes causes other escapes, and marks out the land while deterritorializing himself. An active point of escape where the revolutionary machine, the artistic machine, the scientific machine, and the, schizo, analytic machine become parts and pieces of one another. For the first positive task of schizoanalysis. The negative or destructive task of schizoanalysis is in no way separable from its positive tasks all these tasks are necessarily undertaken at the same time. The first positive task consists of discovering in a subject the nature, the formation, or the functioning of his desiring machines, independently of any interpretations. What are your desiring machines, what do you put into these machines, what is the output, how does it work, what are your non-human sexes? The schizoanalyst is a mechanic, and schizoanalysis is solely functional. In this respect it cannot remain at the level of a still interpretative examination interpretative from the point of view of the unconscious of the social machines in which the subject is caught as a cog or as a user, nor of the technical machines that are his prized possession, or that he perfects or even produces through handiwork, nor of the subject's use of his machines in his dreams and his fantasies. These machines are still too representative, and represent units that are too large even the perverted machines of the sadist or the masochist, even the influencing machines of the paranoiac. We have seen in general that the pseudo-analyses of the object were really the lowest level of analytic activity, even and especially when they claim to double the real object with an imaginary object, and better a how to interpret your dreams book than a psychoanalysis of the marketplace. The consideration of all these machines, however, whether they be real, symbolic, or imaginary, must indeed intervene in a specific way but as functional indices to point us in the direction of the desiring machines, to which these indices are more or less close and affinal. The desiring machines in fact are only reached starting from a certain threshold of dispersion that no longer permits either their imaginary identity or their structural unity to subsist. These instances title belong to the order of interpretation, that is to say the order of the signified or the signifier. Partial objects are what make up the parts of the desiring machines, partial objects define the working machine or the working parts, but in a state of dispersion such that one part is continually referring to a part from an entirely different machine, like the red clover and the bumblebee, the wasp and the orchid, the bicycle horn and the dead rat's ass. Let's not rush to introduce a term that would be like a phallus structuring the whole and personifying the parts, unifying and totalizing everything. Everywhere there is libido as machine energy, and neither the horn nor the bumblebee have the privilege of being a phallus, the phallus intervenes only in the structural organization and the personal relations deriving from it, where everyone, like the worker called to war, abandons his machines and sets to fighting for a war trophy that is nothing but a great absence, 
with one and the same penalty, one and the same ridiculous wound for all castration. This entire struggle for the phallus, this poorly understood will to power, this anthropomorphic representation of sex, this whole conception of sexuality that horrifies Lawrence precisely because it is no more than a conception, because it is an idea that reason imposes on the unconscious and introduces into the passional sphere, and is not by any means a formation of the sphere here is where desire finds itself trapped, specifically limited to human sex, unified and identified in the molar. Constellation. But the desiring machines live on the contrary under the order of dispersion of the molecular elements. And one fails to understand the nature and function of partial objects if one does not see therein such elements, rather than parts of even a fragmented whole. As Lawrence said, analysis does not have to do with anything that resembles a concept or a person, the so-called human relations are not involved 25. Analysis should deal solely, except in its negative task, with the machinic arrangements grasped in the context of their molecular dispersion. Let us therefore return to the rule so clearly stated by Serge Leclerc, even if he sees this only as a fiction instead of the real desire, real desire the elements or parts of the desiring machines are recognized by their mutual independence, such that nothing in the one depends or should depend on something in the other. They must not be opposed determinations of a same entity, nor the differentiations of a single being, such as the masculine and the feminine in the human sex, but different or really distinct things, derelement distincts, distinct beings, as found in the dispersion of the non-human sex, the clover and the bee. As long as schizoanalysis has not arrived at these disparate elements, it has not yet discovered the partial objects as the ultimate elements of the unconscious. It is in this sense that Leclerc used the term erogenous body not to designate a fragmented organism, but an emission of pre-individual and prepersonal singularities, a pure dispersed and anarchic multiplicity without unity or totality, and whose elements are welded, pasted together by the real distinction or the very absence of a link. Such is the case in the schizoid sequences of Beckett, stones, pockets, mouth, a shoe, a pipe bowl, a small limp bundle that is undefined, a cover for a bicycle bell, half a crutch, if one indefinitely runs up against the same set of pure singularities, one can feel confident that he has drawn near the singularity of the subject's desire. Point 26. To be sure, one can always establish or re-establish some sort of link between these elements, organic links between organs or fragments of organs that eventually form part of the multiplicity, psychological and axiological links the good, the bad that finally refer to the persons or to the scenes from which these elements are borrowed, structural links between the ideas or the concepts apt to correspond to them. But it is not in this respect that the partial objects are elements of the unconscious, and we cannot even go along with the image of the partial objects that their inventor, Melanie Klein, proposes. This is because, whether organs or fragments of organs, the partial objects do not refer in the least to an organism that would function phantasmatically as a lost unity or a totality to come. Their dispersion has nothing to do with the lack, and constitutes their mode of presence in the multiplicity they form without unification or totalization. With every structure dislodged, every memory abolished, every organism set aside, every link undone, they function as raw partial objects, dispersed working parts of a machine that is itself dispersed. 
In short, partial objects are the molecular functions of the unconscious. That is why, when we insisted earlier on the difference between desiring machines and all the figures of molar machines, we were fully aware that they were both contained in, and did not exist without, one another, but we had to stress the difference in regime and in scale between these two machinic species. It is true that one might instead wonder how these conditions of dispersion, of REA, distinction, and of the absence of a link permit any machinic regime to exist how the partial objects thus defined are able to form machines and arrangements of machines. The answer lies in the passive nature of the synthesis, or what amounts to the same thing in the indirect nature of the interactions under consideration. If it is true that every partial object emits a flow, it is also the case that this flow is associated with another partial object and defines the other's potential field of presence, which is itself multiple, a multiplicity of anuses for the flows of shit. The synthesis of connection of the partial objects is indirect, since one of the partial objects, in each point of its presence within the field, always breaks the flow that another object emits or produces relatively, itself ready to emit a flow that other partial objects will break. The flows are two-headed, so to speak, and it is by means of these flows that every productive connection is made, such as we have tried to account for with the notion of flow skis or break flow. So that the true activities of the unconscious, causing to flow and breaking flows, consist of the passive synthesis itself insofar as it ensures the relative coexistence and displacement of the two different functions. Now let us assume that the respective flows associated with two partial objects at least partially overlap, their production remains distinct in relation to the objects X and Y that emit them, but not the fields of presence in relation to the objects A and B that inhabit and interrupt them, such that the partial A and the partial B become in this regard indiscernible, thus the mouth and the anus, the mouth-anus of the anorexic. And they are not indiscernible solely in the mixed region, since one can always assume that, having exchanged their function within this region, they cannot be further distinguished by exclusion there where the two flows no longer overlap, one then finds oneself before a new passive synthesis where A and B are in a paradoxical relationship of included disjunction. Finally there remains the possibility, not of an overlapping of the flows, but of a permutation of the objects that emit them, one discovers fringes of interference on the edge of each field of presence, fringes that testify to the remainder of a flow in the other, and form residual conjunctive synthesis guiding the passage or the heartfelt becoming from the one to the other. A permutation involving two, three, n organs, deformable abstract polygons that make game of the figurative Oedipal triangle, and never cease to undo it. Through binarity, overlapping, or permutation, all these indirect passive synthesis are one and the same engineering of desire. But who will be able to describe the desiring machines of each subject, what analysis will be exacting enough for this? Mozart's desiring machine? Raise your ass to your mouth. Ah, my ass burns like fire, but what can be the meaning of that? Perhaps a turd wants to come out. Yes, yes, turd, I know you, I see you. I feel you. What is this is such a thing possible? These synthesis necessarily imply the position of a body without organs. This is due to the fact that the body without organs is in no way the contrary of the organs partial objects. It is itself produced in the first passive synthesis of connection, 
as that which is going to neutralize or on the contrary put into motion the two activities, the two heads of desire. For as we have seen, it can be produced as the amorphous fluid of anti-production, just as it can be produced as the support that appropriates for itself the flow production. It can as well repel the organs objects as attract them, and appropriate them for itself. But in repulsion as in attraction, the body without organs is not in opposition to these organs objects, it merely ensures its own opposition, and their opposition, with regard to an organism. The body without organs and the organs partial objects are opposed conjointly to the organism. The body without organs is in fact produced as a whole, but a whole alongside the parts a whole that does not unify or totalize them, but that is added to them like a new, really distinct part. When it repels the organs, as in the mounting of the paranoiac machine, the body without organs marks the external limit of the pure multiplicity formed by these organs themselves insofar as they constitute a non-organic and non-organized multiplicity. And when it attracts them and fits itself over them, in the process of a miraculating fetishistic machine, it still does not totalize them, unify them in the manner of an organism, the organs partial objects cling to the body without organs, and enter into the new synthesis of included disjunction and nomadic conjunction, of overlapping and permutation, on this body synthesis that continue to repudiate the organism and its organization. Desire indeed passes through the body, and through the organs, but not through the organism. That is why the partial objects are not the expression of a fragmented, shattered organism, which would presuppose a destroyed totality or the freed parts of a whole, nor is the body without organs the expression of a de-differentiated, de-differentiated, organism stuck back together that would surmount its own parts. The organs partial objects and the body without organs are at bottom one and the same thing, one and the same multiplicity that must be conceived as such by schizoanalysis. Partial objects are the direct powers of the body without organs, and the body without organs, the raw material of the partial objects. The body without organs is the matter that always fills space to given degrees of intensity, and the partial objects are these degrees, these intensive parts that produce the real in space starting from matter as intensity equals zero. The body without organs is the immanent substance, in the most Spinozist sense of the word, and the partial objects are like its ultimate attributes, which belong to it precisely insofar as they are really distinct and cannot on this account exclude or oppose one another. The partial objects and the body without organs are the two material elements of the schizophrenic desiring machines, the one as the immobile motor, the others as the working parts, the one as the giant molecule, the others as the micromolecules the two together in a relationship of continuity from one end to the other of the molecular chain of desire. The chain is like the apparatus of transmission or of reproduction in the desiring machine. Insofar as it brings together without unifying or uniting them the body without organs and the partial objects, the desiring machine is inseparable both from the distribution of the partial objects on the body without organs, and from the leveling effect exerted on the partial objects by the body without organs, which results in appropriation. The chain also implies another type of synthesis than the flows, it is no longer the lines of connection that traverse the productive parts of the machine, but an entire network of disjunction on the recording surface of the body without organs. 
and we have doubtless been able to present things in a logical order where the disjunctive synthesis of recording seemed to follow after the connective synthesis of production, with a part of the energy of production, libido, being converted into a recording energy, numen. But in fact, from the standpoint of the machine itself, there is no succession that ensures the strict coexistence of the chains and the flows, as well as of the body without organs and the partial objects. The conversion of a portion of the energy does not occur at a given moment, but is a preliminary and constant condition of the system. The chain is the network of included disjunctions on the body without organs, inasmuch as these disjunctions resect the productive connections, the chain causes them to pass over to the body without organs itself, thereby channeling or codifying the flows. However, the whole question is in knowing whether one can speak of a code at the level of this molecular chain of desire. We have seen that a code implied two things one or the other, or the two together, on the one hand, the specific determination of the full body as a territoriality of support, on the other hand, the erection of a despotic signifier on which the entire chain depends. In this regard, in vain is the axiomatic in profound opposition to codes, since it works on the decoded flows, it cannot itself proceed except by effecting re-territorializations and by reviving the signifying unity. The very notions of code and axiomatic therefore seem to be valid only for the molar aggregates, where the signifying chain forms a given determinate configuration on a support that is itself specifically determined, and in terms of a detached signifier. These conditions are not fulfilled without exclusions forming and appearing in the disjunctive network at the same time as the connective lines take on a global and specific meaning. But it is another case altogether with the properly molecular chain, insofar as the body without organs is a non-specific and non-specified support that marks the molecular limit of the molar aggregates, the chain no longer has any other function than that of deterritorializing the flows and causing them to pass through the signifying wall, thereby undoing the codes. The function of the chain is no longer that of coding the flows on a full body of the earth, the despot, or capital, but on the contrary that of decoding them on the full body without organs. It is a chain of escape, and no longer a code. The signifying chain has become a chain of decoding and deterritorialization, which must be apprehended and can only be apprehended as the reverse of the codes and the territorialities. This molecular chain is still signifying because it is composed of signs of desire, but these signs are no longer signifying, given the fact that they are under the order of the included disjunctions where everything is possible. These signs are points whose nature is a matter of indifference, abstract machinic figures that play freely on the body without organs and as yet form no structured configuration or rather, they form one no longer. As Jacques Monod says, we must conceive of a machine that is such by its functional properties but not by its structure, where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned 27. It is precisely the ambiguity of what the biologists call a genetic code that enables us to understand this kind of situation, for if the corresponding chain effectively forms codes, inasmuch as it folds into exclusive molar configurations, it undoes the codes by unfolding along a molecular fiber that includes all the possible figures. Similarly, in Lakin, the symbolic organization of the structure, with its exclusions that come from the function of the signifier, has as its reverse side the real inorganization of desire. It would seem that the genetic code points to a genie decoding, 
one need only grasp the decoding and deterritorialization functions in their own positivity, inasmuch as they imply a particular chain state that is metastable and distinct both from any axiomatic and from any code. The molecular chain is the form in which the genie unconscious, always remaining subject, reproduces itself. And as we have seen, that is the primary inspiration of psychoanalysis, it does not add a code to all those that are already known. The signifying chain of the unconscious, Newman, is not used to discover or decipher codes of desire, but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire, libido, to circulate, and to discover in desire that which scrambles all the codes and undoes all the territorialities. It is true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the status of a simple code, with the familial territoriality and the signifier of castration. Worse yet, it will happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic, which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to the familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth, and to the psychoanalytic operation that supposedly answers for its own success the couch as an axiomatized earth, the axiomatic of the cure as a successful castration. But by recoding or axiomatizing the flows of desire in this way, psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappreciation of all the syntheses of the unconscious. The body without organs is the model of death. As the authors of horror stories have understood so well, it is not death that serves as the model for catatonia, it is catatonic schizophrenia that gives its model to death. Zero Intensity The death model appears when the body without organs repels the organs and lays them aside, no mouth, no tongue, no teeth to the point of self-mutilation, to the point of suicide. Yet there is no real opposition between the body without organs and the organs as partial objects, the only real opposition is to the molar organism that is their common enemy. In the desiring machine, one sees the same catatonic inspired by the immobile motor that forces him to put aside his organs, to immobilize them, to silence them, but also, impelled by the working parts that work in an autonomous or stereotyped fashion, to reactivate the organs, to reanimate them with local movements. It is a question of different parts of the machine, different and coexisting, different in their very coexistence. Hence it is absurd to speak of a death desire that would presumably be in qualitative opposition to the life desires. Death is not desired, there is only death that desires, by virtue of the body without organs or the immobile motor, and there is also life that desires, by virtue of the working organs. There we do not have two desires but two parts, two kinds of desiring machine parts, in the dispersion of the machine itself. And yet the problem persists, how can all that function together? For it is not yet a functioning, but solely the, non-structural, condition of a molecular functioning. The functioning appears when the motor, under the preceding conditions i.e., without ceasing to be immobile and without forming an organism attracts the organs to the body without organs, and appropriates them for itself in the apparent objective movement. Repulsion is the condition of the machine's functioning, but attraction is the functioning itself. That the functioning depends on repulsion is clear to us, inasmuch as it all works only by breaking down. One is then able to say what this running or this functioning consists of, in the cycle of the desiring machine it is a matter of constantly translating, 
constantly converting the death model into something else altogether, which is the experience of death. Converting the death that rises from within, in the body without organs, into the death that comes from without, on the body without organs. But it seems that things are becoming very obscure, for what is this distinction between the experience of death and the model of death? Here again, is it a death desire? A being for death? Or rather an investment of death, even if speculative? None of the above. The experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious, precisely because it occurs in life and for life, in every passage or becoming, in every intensity as passage or becoming. It is in the very nature of every intensity to invest within itself the zero intensity starting from which it is produced, in one moment, as that which grows or diminishes according to an infinity of degrees, as Klossowski noted, an afflux is necessary merely to signify the absence of intensity. We have attempted to show in this respect how the relations of attraction and repulsion produce such states, sensations, and emotions, which imply a new energetic conversion and form the third kind of synthesis, the synthesis of conjunction. One might say that the unconscious as a real subject has scattered an apparent residual and nomadic subject around the entire compass of its cycle, a subject that passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions, the last part of the desiring machine, the adjacent part. These intense becomings and feelings, these intensive emotions, feed deliriums and hallucinations. But in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in itself. They control the unconscious experience of death, insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling, what never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming in the becoming another sex, the becoming God, the becoming a race, etc., forming zones of intensity on the body without organs. Every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death, and envelopes it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. Death, then, does actually happen. Maurice Blancott distinguishes this twofold nature clearly, these two irreducible aspects of death, the one, according to which the apparent subject never ceases to live and travel as a one one never stops and never has done with dying, and the other, according to which the same subject, fixed as I, actually dies which is to say it finally ceases to die since it ends up dying, in the reality of a last instant that fixes it in this way as an I, all the while undoing the intensity, carrying it. Back to the zero that envelopes at point 28. From one aspect to the other, there is not at all a personal deepening, but something quite different, there is a return from the experience of death to the model of death, in the cycle of the desiring machines. The cycle is closed. For a new departure, since this I is another? The experience of death must have given us exactly enough broadened experience, in order to live and know that the desiring machines do not die. And that the subject as an adjacent part is always a one who conducts the experience, not an I who receives the model. For the model itself is not the I either, but the body without organs and I does not rejoin the model without the model starting out again in the direction of another experience. Always going from the model to the experience, and starting out again, returning from the model to the experience, 
is what schizophrenizing death amounts to, the exercise of the desiring machines, which is their very secret, well understood by the terrifying authors. The machines tell us this, and make us live it, feel it, deeper than delirium and further than hallucination, yes, the return to repulsion will condition other attractions, other functionings, the setting in motion of other working parts on the body without organs, the putting to work of other adjacent parts on the periphery that have as much a right to say one as we ourselves do. Let him die in his leaping through unheard of and unamable things, other horrible workers will come, they will begin on the horizons where the other collapsed, 29. The eternal return as experience, and as the deterritorialized circuit of all the cycles of desire. How odd the psychoanalytic venture is. Psychoanalysis ought to be a song of life, or else be worth nothing at all. It ought, practically, to teach us to sing life. And see how the most defeated, sad song of death emanates from it, Eiapapia. From the start, and because of his stubborn dualism of the drives, Freud never stopped trying to limit the discovery of a subjective or vital essence of desire as libido. But when the dualism passed into a death instinct against Eros, this was no longer a simple limitation, it was a liquidation of the libido. Reich did not go wrong here, and was perhaps the only one to maintain that the product of analysis should be a free and joyous person, a carrier of the life flows, capable of carrying them all the way into the desert and decoding them even if this idea necessarily took on the appearance of a crazy idea, given what had become of analysis. He demonstrated that Freud, no less than Jung and Adler, had repudiated the sexual position, the fixing of the death instinct in fact deprives sexuality of its generative role on at least one essentia. Point, which is the genesis of anxiety, since this genesis becomes the autonomous cause, of sexual repression instead of its result, it follows that sexuality as desire no longer animates a social critique of civilization, but that civilization on the contrary finds itself sanctified as the sole agency capable of opposing the death desire. And how does it do this? By in principle turning death against death, by making this turned back death, la mort retourne, into a force of desire, by putting it in the service of a pseudo-life through an entire culture of guilt feeling. There is no need to tell all over how psychoanalysis culminates in a theory of culture that takes up again the age-old task of the ascetic ideal, nirvana, the cultural extract, judging life, belittling life, measuring life against death, and only retaining from life what the death of death wants very much to leave us with a sublime resignation. As Reich says, when psychoanalysis began to speak of Eros, the whole world breathed a sigh of relief, one knew what this meant, and that everything was going to unfold within a mortified life, since then Eidos was now the partner of Eros, for worse but also for better point 30 psychoanalysis becomes the training ground of a new kind of priest, the director of bad conscience, bad conscience has made us sick, but that is what will cure us. Freud did not hide what was really at issue with the introduction of the death instinct, it is not a question of any fact whatever, but merely of a principle, a question of principle. The death instinct is pure silence, pure transcendence, not giveable and not given in experience. This very point is remarkable, it is because death, according to Freud, has neither a model nor an experience, 
that he makes of it a transcendent principle.31 So that the psychoanalysts who refused the death instinct did so for the same reasons as those who accepted it, some said that there was no death instinct since there was no model or experience in the unconscious, others, that there was a death instinct precisely because there was no model or experience. We say, to the contrary, that there is no death instinct because there is both the model and the experience of death in the unconscious. Death then is a part of the desiring machine a part that must itself be judged, evaluated in the functioning of the machine and the system of its energetic conversions, and not as an abstract principle. If Freud needs death as a principle, this is by virtue of the requirements of the dualism that maintains a qualitative opposition between the drives, you will not escape the conflict once the dualism of the sexual drives and the ego drives has only a topological scope, the qualitative or dynamic dualism passes between Eros and then Eidos. But the same enterprise is continued and reinforced eliminating the machinic element of desire, the desiring machines. It is a matter of eliminating the libido, insofar as it implies the possibility of energetic conversions in the machine, libido numen voluptus. It is a matter of imposing the idea of an energetic duality rendering the machinic transformations impossible, with everything obliged to pass by way of an indifferent neutral energy, that energy emanating from Oedipus and capable of being added to either of the two irreducible forms neutralizing, mortifying life. The purpose of the topological and dynamic dualities is to thrust aside the point of view of functional multiplicity that alone is economic. Zondi situates the problem clearly, why two kinds of drives qualified as molar, functioning mysteriously, which is to say edibly, rather than n genes of drives 8 molecular genes, for example functioning machinically. If one looks in this direction for the ultimate reason why Freud erects a transcendent death instinct as a principle, the reason will be found in Freud's practice itself. For if the principle has nothing to do with the facts, it has a lot to do with the psychoanalyst's conception of psychoanalytic practice, a conception the psychoanalyst wishes to impose. Freud made the most profound discovery of the abstract subjective essence of desire libido. But since he realienated this essence, reinvesting it in a subjective system of representation of the ego, and since he recoded this essence on the residual territoriality of Oedipus and under the despotic signifier of castration, he could no longer conceive the essence of life except in a form turned back against itself, in the form of death itself. And this neutralization, this turning against life, is also the last way in which a depressive and exhausted libido can go on surviving, and dream that it is surviving, the ascetic ideal is an artifice for the preservation of life. Even when he wounds himself, this master of destruction, of self-destructing the very wound itself compels him to live. 32. It is Oedipus, the marshy earth, that gives off a powerful odor of decay and death, and it is castration, the pious ascetic wound, the signifier, that makes of this death a conservatory for the Oedipal life. Desire is in itself not a desire to love, but a force to love a virtue that gives and produces, that engineers. For how could what is in life still desire life? Who would want to call that a desire? But desire must turn back against itself in the name of a horrible anank, the anank of the weak and the depressed, the contagious neurotic anank, desire must produce its shadow or its monkey, and find a strange artificial force for vegetating in the void, at the heart of its own lack. 
for better days to come. It must but who talks in this way. What abjectness become a desire to be loved, and worse, a sniveling desire to have been loved, a desire that is reborn of its own frustration, no, daddy mommy didn't love me enough. Sick desire stretches out on the couch, an artificial swamp, a little earth, a little mother. Look at you, stumbling and staggering with no use in your legs. And it's nothing but your wanting to be loved which does it. A maudlin crying to be loved, which makes your knees go all ricky 33. Just as there are two stomachs for the ruminant, there must also exist two abortions, two cast rations for sick desire, once in the family, in the familial scene, with the knitting mother, another time in an aseptized clinic, in the psychoanalytic scene, with specialist artists who know how to handle the death instinct and bring off castration, bring off frustration. Is this really the right way to bring on better days? And aren't all the destructions performed by schizoanalysis worth more than this psychoanalytic conservatory, aren't they more a part of an affirmative task? Lie down, then, on the soft couch which the analyst provides and try to think up something different. If you realize that he is not a god but a human being like yourself, with worries, defects, ambitions, frailties, that he is not the repository of an all-encompassing wisdom equals code but a wanderer, along the deterritorialized path, perhaps you will cease pouring it out like a sewer, however melodious it may sound to your ears, and rise up on your own two legs and sing with your own God-given voice Newman. To confess, to whine, to complain, to commiserate, always demands a toll. To sing it doesn't cost you a penny. Not only does it cost nothing you actually enrich others, instead of infecting them. The phantasmal world is the world which has not been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never of the future. To move forward clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain. We are all guilty of crime, the great crime of not living life to the full 34. You weren't born Oedipus, you caused it to grow in yourself, and you aim to get out of it through fantasy, through castration, but this in turn you have caused to grow in Oedipus namely, in yourself, the horrible circle. Shit on your whole mortifying, imaginary, and symbolic theater. What does schizoanalysis ask? Nothing more than a bit of a relation to the outside, a little real reality. And we claim the right to a radical laxity, a radical incompetence the right to enter the analyst's office and say it smells bad there. It reeks of the great death and the little ego. Freud himself indeed spoke of the link between his discovery of the death instinct and World War I, which remains the model of capitalist war. More generally, the death instinct celebrates the wedding of psychoanalysis and capitalism, their engagement had been full of hesitation. What we have tried to show apropos of capitalism is how it inherited much from a transcendent death-carrying agency, the despotic signifier, but also how it brought about this agency's effusion in the full imminence of its own system, the full body, having become that of capital money, suppresses the distinction between production and anti-production, everywhere it mixes anti-production with the productive forces in the imminent reproduction of its own always widened limits, the axiomatic. The death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. It is this itinerary that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct, 
the death instinct is now only pure silence in its transcendent distinction from life, but it effuses all the more, throughout all the imminent combinations it forms with this same life. Absorbed, diffuse, imminent death is the condition formed by the signifier in capitalism, the empty locus that is everywhere displaced in order to block the schizophrenic escapes and place restraints on the flights. The only modern myth is the myth of zombies mortified schizos, good for work, brought back to reason. In this sense the primitive and the barbarian, with their ways of coding death, are children in comparison to modern man and his axiomatic, so many unemployed are needed, so many deaths, the Algerian war doesn't kill more people than weekend automobile accidents, planned death in Bengal, etc. Modern man raves to a far greater extent. His delirium is a switchboard with 13 telephones. He gives his orders to the world. He doesn't care for the ladies. He is brave, too. He is decorated like crazy. In man's game of chance the death instinct, the silent instinct is decidedly well placed, perhaps next to egoism. It takes the place of zero in roulette. The house always wins. So too does death. The law of large numbers works for death 35. It is now or never that we must take up a problem we had left hanging. Once it is said that capitalism works on the basis of decoded flows as such, how is it that it is infinitely further removed from desiring production than were the primitive or even the barbarian systems, which nonetheless code and overcode the flows? Once it is said that desiring production is itself a decoded and deterritorialized production, how do we explain that capitalism, with its axiomatic, its statistics, performs an infinitely vaster repression of this production than do the preceding regimes, which nonetheless did not lack the necessary repressive means? We have seen that the molar statistical aggregates of social production were in a variable relationship of affinity with the molecular formations of desiring production. What must be explained is that the capitalist aggregate is the least affinal, at the very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. The answer is the death instinct, if we call instinct in general the conditions of life that are historically and socially determined by the relations of production and anti-production in a system. We know that molar social production and molecular desiring production must be evaluated both from the viewpoint of their identity in nature and from the viewpoint of their difference in regime. But it could be that these two aspects, nature and regime, are in a sense potential and are actualized only in inverse proportion. Which means that where the regimes are the closest, the identity in nature is on the contrary at its minimum, and where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. If we examine the primitive or the barbarian constellations, we see that the subjective essence of desire as production is referred to large objectities, to the territorial or the despotic body, which act as natural or divine preconditions that thus ensure the coding or the overcoding of the flows of desire by introducing them into systems of representation that are themselves objective. Hence it can be said that the identity in nature between the two productions is completely hidden there, as much by the difference between the objective socius and the subjective full body of desiring production, as by the difference between the qualified codes and overcodings of social production and the chains of decoding or of deterritorialization belonging to desiring production, and by the entire repressive apparatus represented in the savage prohibitions, the barbarian law, and the rights.
of anti-production. And yet the difference in regime, far from being accentuated and deepened, is on the contrary reduced to a minimum, because desiring production as an absolute limit remains an exterior limit, or else stays unoccupied as an internalized and displaced limit, with the result that the machines of desire operate on this side of their limit within the framework of the socius and its codes. That is why the primitive codes and even the despotic overcodings testify to a polyvocity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire, the parts of the desiring machine function in the very workings of the social machine, the flows of desire enter and exit through the codes that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of the socia-desiring apparatus. And it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops grafting the desiring machines onto the social machine and implanting the social machine in the desiring machines. Death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within. This is especially true of the system of cruelty, where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanism of surplus value as well as in the movement of the finite blocks of debt. But even in the system of despotic terror, where debt becomes infinite and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make of it a latent instinct, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law, and an experience for the overcoded subjects, at the same time as anti-production remains separate as the share owing to the overlord. Things are very different in capitalism. Precisely because the flows of capital are decoded and deterritorialized flows, precisely because the subjective essence of production is revealed in capitalism, precisely because the limit becomes internal to capitalism, which continually reproduces it, and also continually occupies it as an internalized and displaced limit, precisely for these reasons, the identity in nature must appear for itself between social production and desiring production. But in its turn, this identity in nature, far from favoring an affinity in regime between the two modes of production, increases the difference in regime in a catastrophic fashion, and assembles an apparatus of repression the mere idea of which neither savagery nor barbarism could provide us. This is because, on the basis of a general collapse of the large objectities, the decoded and deterritorialized flows of capitalism are not recaptured or co-opted, but directly apprehended in a codeless axiomatic that consigns them to the universe of subjective representation. Now this universe has as its function the splitting of the subjective essence, the identity in nature, into two functions, that of abstract labor alienated in private property that reproduces the ever wider interior limits, and that of abstract desire alienated in the privatized family that displaces the ever narrower internalized limits. The double alienation labor desire is constantly increasing and deepening the difference in regime at the heart of the identity in nature. At the same time that death is decoded, it loses its relationship with a model and an experience, and becomes an instinct, that is, it effuses in the imminent system where each act of production is inextricably linked to the process of anti-production as capital. There where the codes are undone, the death instinct lays hold of the repressive apparatus and begins to direct the circulation of the libido. A mortuary axiomatic. One might then believe in liberated desires, but ones that, like cadavers, feed on images. Death is not desired, but what is desired is dead, already dead, images. Everything labors in death, everything wishes for death. In truth, 
capitalism has nothing to co-opt, or rather, its powers of co-option coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted, and even anticipate it. How many revolutionary groups as such are already in place for a co-option that will be carried out only in the future, and form an apparatus for the absorption of a surplus value not even produced yet which gives them precisely an apparent revolutionary position. In a world such as this, there is no living desire that could not of itself cause the system to explode, or that would not make the system dissolve at one end where everything would end up following behind and being swallowed up a question of regime. Here are the desiring machines, with their three parts, the working parts, the immobile motor, the adjacent part, their three forms of energy, libido, numen, and voluptas, and their three syntheses, the connective syntheses of partial objects and flows, the disjunctive syntheses of singularities and chains, and the conjunctive syntheses of intensities and becomings. The schizoanalyst is not an interpreter, even less a theater director, he is a mechanic, a micro-mechanic. There are no excavations to be undertaken, no archaeology, no statues in the unconscious, there are only stones to be sucked, a law becket, and other machinic elements belonging to deterritorialized constellations. The task of schizoanalysis is that of learning what a subject's desiring machines are, how they work, with what synthesis, what bursts of energy in the machine, what constituent misfires, with what flows, what chains, and what becomings in each case. Moreover, this positive task cannot be separated from indispensable destructions, the destruction of the molar aggregates, the structures, and representations that prevent the machine from functioning. It is not easy to rediscover the molecules even the giant molecule their paths, their zones of presence, and their own synthesis, amid the large accumulations that fill the preconscious, and that delegate their representatives in the unconscious itself, thereby immobilizing the machines, silencing them, trapping them, sabotaging them, cornering them, holding them fast. In the unconscious it is not the lines of pressure that matter, but on the contrary the lines of escape. The unconscious does not apply pressure to consciousness, rather, consciousness applies pressure and straight jackets the unconscious, to prevent its escape. As to the unconscious, it is like the platonic opposite whose opposite draws near, it flees or it perishes. What we have tried to show from the outset is how the unconscious productions and formations were not merely repelled by an agency of psychic repression that would enter into compromises with them, but actually covered over by anti-formations that disfigure the unconscious in itself, and impose on it causations, comprehensions, and expressions that no longer have anything to do with its real functioning, thus all the statues, the edible images, the phantasmal mises and scene, the symbolic of castration, the effusion of the death instinct, the perverse re-territorializations. So that one can never, as in an interpretation, read the repressed through and in the repression, since the latter is constantly inducing a false image of the thing it represses, illegitimate and transcendent uses of the synthesis according to which the unconscious can no longer operate in accordance with its own constituent machines, but merely represent what a repressive apparatus gives it to represent. It is the very form of interpretation that shows itself to be incapable of attaining the unconscious, since it gives rise to the inevitable illusions, including the structure and the signifier, 
by means of which the conscious makes of the unconscious an image consonant with its wishes, we are still pious, psychoanalysis remains in the pre-critical age. Doubtless these illusions would not take hold if they did not benefit from a coincidence and a support in the unconscious itself that ensures the hold. We have seen what this support was, primal repression, as exerted by the body without organs at the moment of repulsion, at the heart of molecular desiring production. Without this primal repression psychic repression in the proper sense of the word could not be delegated in the unconscious by the molar forces and thus crush desiring production. Repression properly speaking profits from an occasion without which it could not interfere in the machinery of desire.36 In contrast to psychoanalysis, which itself falls into the trap while causing the unconscious to fall into its trap, schizoanalysis follows the lines of escape and the machinic indices all the way to the desiring machines. If the essential aspect of the destructive task is to undo the Oedipal trap of repression properly speaking, and all its dependencies, each time in a way adapted to the case in question, the essential aspect of the first positive task is to ensure the machinic conversion of primal repression, thereto in an adapted variable manner. Which is to say, undoing the blockage or the coincidence on which the repression properly speaking relies, transforming the apparent opposition of repulsion, the body without organs slash the machine's partial objects, into a condition of real functioning, ensuring this functioning in the forms of attraction and production of intensities, thereafter integrating the failures in the attractive functioning, as well as enveloping the zero degree in the intensities produced, and thereby causing the desiring machines to start up again. Such is the delicate and focal point that fills the function of transference in schizoanalysis dispersing, schizophrenizing the perverse transference of psychoanalysis. 5. The second positive task. We cannot however allow the difference in regime to make us forget the identity in nature. There are fundamentally two poles, but we would not be satisfied if we had to present them merely as the duality of the molar formations and the molecular formations, since there is not one molecular formation that is not by itself an investment of a molar formation. There are no desiring machines that exist outside the social machines that they form on a large scale, and no social machines without the desiring machines that inhabit them on a small scale. Nor is there any molecular chain that does not intercept and reproduce whole blocks of molar code or axiomatic, nor any such blocks that do not contain or seal off fragments of molecular chain. A sequence of desire is extended by a social series, or a social machine contains desiring machine parts within its workings. The desiring micromultiplicities are no less collective than the large social aggregates, they are strictly inseparable and constitute one and the same process of production. From this point of view, the duality of the poles passes less between the molar and the molecular than to the interior of the molar social investments, since in any case the molecular formations are such investments. That is why our terminology concerning the two poles has necessarily varied. At times we contrasted the molar and the molecular as the paranoiac, signifying, and structured lines of integration, and the schizophrenic, machinic, and dispersed lines of escape, or again as the staking out of the perverse re-territorializations, and as the movement of the schizophrenic deterritorializations. At other times, on the contrary, we contrasted them as the two major types of equally social investments, the one sedentary and biunivocalizing, and of a reactionary or fascist tendency, the other nomadic and polyvocal, 
and of a revolutionary tendency. In fact, in the schizoid declaration I am of a race inferior for all eternity, I am a beast, a black, we are all German Jews the historico-social field is no less invested than in the paranoiac formula, I am one of your kind, from the same place as you, I am a pure Aryan, of a superior race for all time. From the viewpoint of the unconscious libidinal investment, all the oscillations from one formula to the other are possible. How can this be? How can the schizophrenic escape, with its molecular dispersion, form an investment that is as strong and determined as the other? And why ain't there two types of social investment that correspond to the two poles? The answer is that everywhere there exist the molecular and the molar, their disjunction is a relation of included disjunction, which varies only according to the two directions of subordination, according as the molecular phenomena are subordinated to the large aggregates, or on the contrary subordinate them to themselves. At one of the poles the large aggregates, the large forms of gregariousness, do not prevent the flight that carries them along, and they oppose to it the paranoiac investment only as an escape in advance of the escape. But at the other pole, the schizophrenic escape itself does not merely consist in withdrawing from the social, in living on the fringe, it causes the social to take flight through the multiplicity of holes that eat away at it and penetrate it, always coupled directly to it, everywhere setting the molecular charges that will explode what must explode, make fall what must fall, make escape what must escape, at each point ensuring the conversion of schizophrenia as a process into an effectively revolutionary force. For what is the schizo, if not first of all the one who can no longer bear all that, money, the stock market, the death forces, Nijinsky said values, morals, homelands, religions, and private certitudes. There is a whole world of difference between the schizo Anu the revolutionary, the difference between the one who escapes, and the one who knows how to make what he is escaping escape, collapsing a filthy drainage pipe, causing a deluge to break loose, liberating a flow, resecting a skis. The schizo is not revolutionary, but the schizophrenic process in terms of which the schizo is merely the interruption, or the continuation in the void is the potential for revolution. To those who say that escaping is not courageous, we answer, what is not escape and social investment at the same time? The choice is between one of two poles, the paranoiac counter-escape that motivates all the conformist, reactionary, and fascicizing investments, and the schizophrenic escape convertible into a revolutionary investment. Maurice Blancott speaks admirably of this revolutionary escape, this fall that must be thought and carried out as the most positive of events, what is this escape? The word is poorly chosen to please. Courage consists, however, in agreeing to flee rather than live tranquilly and hypocritically in false refuges. Values, morals, homelands, religions, and these private certitudes that our vanity and our complacency bestow generously on us, have as many deceptive sojourns as the world arranges for those who think they are standing straight and at ease, among stable things. They know nothing of this immense flight that transports them, ignorant of themselves, in the monotonous buzzing of their ever-quickening steps that lead them impersonally in a great immobile movement. An escape in advance of the escape. Consider the example of one of these men who, having had the revelation of the mysterious drift, is no longer able to stand living in the false pretenses of residence. First he tries to take this movement as his own. 
he would like to personally withdraw. He lives on the fringe. But perhaps that is what the fall is, that it can no longer be a personal destiny, but the common lot 37. In this regard, the first thesis of schizoanalysis is this, every investment is social, and in any case bears upon a socio-historical field. Let us recall the major traits of a molar formation or of a form of gregariousness, herd instinct. They affect a unification, a totalization of the molecular forces through a statistical accumulation obeying the laws of large numbers. This unity can be the biological unity of a species or the structural unity of a socius, an organism, social or living, is composed as a whole, as a global or complete object. It is in relation to this new order that the partial objects of a molecular order appear as a lack, at the same time that the whole itself is said to be lacked by the partial objects. In this way desire will be fused to lack. The myriad breaks flows that determine the positive dispersion in a molecular multiplicity are fitted over vacuoles of lack that perform this fusion in a statistical constellation of a molar order. Freud demonstrated clearly in this respect how one went from psychotic multiplicities of dispersion, founded on the breaks or schizes, to large vacuoles determined globally, of the neurosis and castration type, the neurotic needs a global object in relation to which the partial objects can be determined as a lack, and inversely 38 but on a more general level, the statistical transformation of molecular multiplicity into a molar constellation is what organizes lack on a large scale. Such an organization belongs essentially to the biological or social organism species or socius. There is no society that does not arrange lack in its midst, by variable means peculiar to it. These means are not the same, for example, in a despotic type of society, or in a capitalist society where the market economy raises them to a degree of perfection unknown before capitalism. This welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals, or intentions instead of desire taken in the real order of its production, which behaves as a molecular phenomenon devoid of any goal or intention. Nor must it be thought that the statistical accumulation results from chance, or that it is a random result. This accumulation is on the contrary the fruit of a selection exerting its force on the elements of chance. When Nietzsche says that the selection is most often exerted in favor of the large number, he inaugurates a fundamental intuition that will inspire modern thought. For what he means is that the large numbers or the large aggregates do not exist prior to a selective pressure that might elicit singular lines from them, but that, quite on the contrary, these large numbers and aggregates are born of this selective pressure that crushes, eliminates, or regularizes the singularities. Selection does not presuppose a primary gregariousness, gregariousness presupposes the selection and is born of it. Culture as a selective process of marking or inscription invents the large numbers in whose favor it is exerted. That is why statistics is not functional but structural, and concerns chains of phenomena that selection has already placed in a state of partial dependence, the Markov chains. This can even be seen in the genetic code. In other terms, forms of gregariousness are never indifferent, they refer back to the qualified forms that produce them by creative selection. The order is not, gregariousness selection, but on the contrary, molecular multiplicity forms of selection performing the selection molar or gregarious aggregates that result from this selection. 
What are these qualified forms formations of sovereignty, as Nietzsche said that play the role of totalizing, unifying, signifying objectities, that assign organizations, lacks, and goals. The full bodies determine the different modes of the socius, veritable heavy aggregates of the earth, the despot, and capital. Full bodies or clothed substances, which are distinguished from the full body without organs or the naked matter of molecular desiring production. 39 If we wonder where these forms of force come from, it is evident that they are not to be explained in terms of any goal or end, since they are what determines goals and ends. The form or quality of a given socius the body of the earth, the body of the despot, the body of capital money depends on a state or degree of intensive development of the productive forces, insofar as these forces define a man nature independent of all the social formations, or rather common to them all, what the Marxists term the givens of useful labor. The form or quality of the socius is therefore itself produced, but as the unengendered that is, as the natural or divine precondition of production corresponding to a given degree to which it affixes a structural unity and apparent goals, to which it falls back, and whose forces it appropriates, thereby determining the selections, the accumulations, and the attractions without which these forces would not assume a social character. It is indeed in the sense that social production is desiring production itself under determinate conditions. These determinate conditions are thus the forms of gregariousness as a socius or full body, under whose effect the molecular formations constitute molar aggregates. Now we can present the second thesis of schizoanalysis, within the social investments we will distinguish the unconscious libidinal investment of group or desire, and the preconscious investment of class or interest. The latter passes by way of the large social goals, and concerns the organism and the collective organs, including the arranged vacuoles of lack. A class is defined by a regime of syntheses, a state of global connections, exclusive disjunctions, and residual conjunctions that characterize the aggregate being considered. Membership in a class refers to the role in production or anti-production, to the place in the inscription, to the portion that is due the subjects. The preconscious class interest itself thus refers to the selections of flows, to the detachments of codes, to the subjective remains or revenues. And from this viewpoint it is indeed true that an aggregate comprises practically only a single class, that class which has an interest in a given regime. The other class can constitute itself only by a counter-investment that creates its own interest in terms of new social aims, new organs, and means, a new possible state of social synthesis. Whence the necessity for the other class to be represented by a party apparatus that assigns these aims and means, and affects a revolutionary break in the preconscious domain the Leninist break, for example. In this domain of preconscious investments of class or interest it is therefore easy to distinguish what is reactionary or reformist, or what is revolutionary. But those who have an interest, in this sense, are always of a smaller number than those whose interest, in some fashion, is had or represented, the class from the standpoint of praxis is infinitely less numerous or less extensive than the class taken in its theoretical determination. Whence the subsisting contradictions within the dominant class, i.e., the class pure and simple. This is obvious in the capitalist regime where, for example, primitive accumulation can take place only for the benefit of a restricted fraction of the whole of the dominant class. But it is just as obvious for the Russian Revolution, 
with its formation of a party apparatus. This situation is not at all adequate, however, for resolving the following problem, why do many of those who have or should have an objective revolutionary interest maintain a preconscious investment of a reactionary type? And more rarely, how do certain people whose interest is objectively reactionary come to effect a preconscious revolutionary investment? Must we invoke in the one case a thirst for justice, a just ideological position, as well as a correct and just view, and in the other case a blindness, the result of an ideological deception or mystification? Revolutionaries often forget, or do not like to recognize, that one wants and makes revolution out of desire, not duty. Here as elsewhere, the concept of ideology is an execrable concept that hides the real problems, which are always of an organizational nature. If Reich, at the very moment he raised the most profound of questions why did the masses desire fascism, was content to answer by invoking the ideological, the subjective, the irrational, the negative, and the inhibited, it was because he remained the prisoner of derived concepts that made him fall short of the materialist psychiatry he dreamed of, that prevented him from seeing how desire was part of the infrastructure, and that confined him in the duality of the objective and the subjective. Consequently, psychoanalysis was consigned to the analysis of the subjective, as defined by ideology. But everything is objective or subjective, as one wishes. That is not the distinction, the distinction to be made passes into the economic infrastructure itself and into its investments. Libidinal economy is no less objective than political economy, and the political no less subjective than the libidinal, even though the two correspond to two modes of different investments of the same reality as social reality. There is an unconscious libidinal investment of desire that does not necessarily coincide with the preconscious investments of interest, and that explains how the latter can be perturbed and perverted in the most somber organization, below all ideology. Libidinal investment does not bear upon the regime of the social synthesis, but upon the degree of development of the forces or the energies on which these synthesis depend. It does not bear upon the selections, detachments, and remainders affected by these synthesis, but upon the nature of the codes and the flows that condition them. It does not bear upon the social means and ends, but upon the full body as socius, the formation of sovereignty, or the form of power for itself, devoid of meaning and purpose, since the meanings and the purposes derive from it, and not the contrary. It is doubtless true that interests predispose us to a given libidinal investment, but they are not identical with this investment. Moreover, the unconscious libidinal investment is what causes us to look for our interest in one place rather than another, to fix our aims on a given path, convinced that this is where our chances lie since love drives us on. The manifest synthesis are merely the preconscious indicators of a degree of development, the apparent interests and aims are merely the preconscious exponents of a social full body. As Klossowski says in his profound commentary on Nietzsche, a form of power is identical with the violence it exerts by its very absurdity, but it can exert this violence only by assigning itself aims and meanings in which even the most enslaved elements participate, the sovereign formations will have no other purpose than that of masking the absence of a purpose or a meaning of their sovereignty by means of the organic purpose of their creation, forty and the purpose of thereby converting the absurdity into spirituality. 
That is why it is so futile to attempt to distinguish what is rational and what is irrational in a society. To be sure, the role, the place, and the part one has in a society, and from which one inherits in terms of the laws of social reproduction, impel the libido to invest a given socius as a full body a given absurd power in which we participate, or have the chance to participate, under the cover of aims and interests. The fact remains that there exists a disinterested love of the social machine, of the form of power, and of the degree of development in and for themselves. Even in the person who has an interest and loves them besides with a form of love other than that of his interest. This is also the case for the person who has no interest, and who substitutes the force of a strange love for this counter-investment. Flows that run on the porous full body of associates these are the object of desire, higher than all the aims. It will never flow too much, it will never break or code enough and in that very way. Oh how beautiful the machine is! The officer of in the penal colony demonstrates what an intense libidinal investment of a machine can be, a machine that is not only technical but social, and through which desire desires its own repression. We have seen how the capitalist machine constituted a system of imminence bordered by a great mutant flow, non-possessive and non-possessed, flowing over the full body of capital and forming an absurd power. Everyone in his class and his person receives something from this power, or is excluded from it, insofar as the great flow is converted into incomes, incomes of wages or of enterprises that define aims or spheres of interest, selections, detachments, and portions. But the investment of the flow itself and its axiomatic, which to be sure requires no precise knowledge of political economy, is the business of the unconscious libido, inasmuch as it is presupposed by the aims. We see the most disadvantaged, the most excluded members of society invest with passion the system that oppresses them, and where they always find an interest, since it is here that they search for and measure it. Interest always comes after. Anti-production effuses in the system, anti-production is loved for itself, as is the way in which desire represses itself in the great capitalist aggregate. Repressing desire, not only for others but in oneself, being the cop for others and for oneself that is what arouses, and it is not ideology, it is economy. Capitalism garners and possesses the force of the aim and the interest, power, but it feels a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Oh, to be sure, it is not for himself or his children that the capitalist works, but for the immortality of the system. A violence without purpose, a joy, a pure joy in feeling oneself a will in the machine, traversed by flows, broken by schizes. Placing oneself in a position where one is thus traversed, broken, fucked by the socius, looking for the right place where, according to the aims and the interests assigned to us, one feels something moving that has neither an interest nor a purpose. A sort of art for art's sake in the libido, a taste for a job well done, each one in his own place, the banker, the cop, the soldier, the technocrat, the bureaucrat, and why not the worker, the trade unionist. Desire is agape. Not only can the libidinal investment of the social field interfere with the investment of interest, and constrain the most disadvantaged, the most exploited, to seek their ends in an oppressive machine, but what is reactionary or revolutionary in the preconscious investment of interest does not necessarily coincide with what is reactionary or revolutionary in the unconscious libidinal investment.
a revolutionary pre-conscious investment bears upon new aims, new social synthesis, a new power. But it could be that a part at least of the unconscious libido continues to invest the former body, the old form of power, its codes, and its flows. It is all the easier, and the contradiction is all the better masked, as a state of forces does not prevail over the former state without preserving or reviving the old full body as a residual and subordinated territoriality, witness how the capitalist machine revives the despotic er state, or how the socialist machine preserves a state and market monopoly capitalism. But there is something more serious, even when the libido embraces the new body the new force that corresponds to the effectively revolutionary goals and synthesis from the viewpoint of the preconscious it is not certain that the unconscious libidinal investment is itself revolutionary. For the same breaks do not pass at the level of the unconscious desires and the preconscious interests. The preconscious revolutionary break is sufficiently well defined by the promotion of associates as a full body carrying new aims, as a form of power or a formation of sovereignty that subordinates desiring production under new conditions. But even though the unconscious libido is charged with investing the socius, its investment is not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as the preconscious investment. In fact, the unconscious revolutionary break implies for its part the body without organs as the limit of the socius that desiring production subordinates in its turn, under the condition of an overthrown power, an overthrown subordination. The preconscious revolution refers to a new regime of social production that creates, distributes, and satisfies new aims and interests. But the unconscious revolution does not merely refer to the socius that conditions this change as a form of power, it refers within this socius to the regime of desiring production as an overthrown power on the body without organs. It is not the same state of flows and schizes, in one case the break is between two forms of socius, the second of which is measured according to its capacity to introduce the flows of desire into a new code or a new axiomatic of interest, in the other case the break is within the socius itself, in that it has the capacity for causing the flows of desire to circulate following their positive lines of escape, and for breaking them again following breaks of productive breaks. The most general principle of schizoanalysis is that desire is always constitutive of a social field. In any case desire belongs to the infrastructure, not to ideology, desire is in production as social production, just as production is in desire as desiring production. But these forms can be understood in two ways, depending on whether desire is enslaved to a structured molar aggregate that it constitutes under a given form of power and gregariousness or whether it subjugates the large aggregate to the functional multiplicities that it itself forms on the molecular scale, it is no more a case of persons or individuals in this instance than in the other. If the preconscious revolutionary break appears at the first level, and is defined by the characteristics of a new aggregate, the unconscious or libidinal break belongs to the second level and is defined by the driving role of desiring production and the position of its multiplicities. It is understandable, Therefore, that a group can be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and its preconscious investments, but not be so and even remain fascist and police-like from the standpoint of its libidinal investments. Truly revolutionary preconscious interests do not necessarily imply unconscious investments of the same nature, an apparatus of interest never takes the place of a machine of desire. A revolutionary group at the preconscious level remains a subjugated group, even in seizing power, 
as long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production. The moment it is pre-consciously revolutionary, such a group already presents all the unconscious characteristics of a subjugated group, the subordination to associates as a fixed support that attributes to itself the productive forces, extracting and absorbing the surplus value therefrom, the effusion of anti-production and death-carrying elements within the system, which feels and pretends to be all the more immortal, the phenomena of group superegoization, narcissism, and hierarchy the mechanisms for the repression of desire. A subject group, on the contrary, is a group whose libidinal investments are themselves revolutionary, it causes desire to penetrate into the social field, and subordinates the socius or the form of power to desiring production, productive of desire and a desire that produces, the subject group invents always mortal formations that exorcise the effusion in it of a death instinct, it opposes real coefficients of transversally to the symbolic determinations of subjugation, coefficients without a hierarchy or a group superego. What complicates everything, it is true, is that the same individuals can participate in both kinds of groups in diverse ways, St. Just, Lenin. Or the same group can present both characteristics at the same time, in diverse situations that are nevertheless coexistent. A revolutionary group can already have resumed the form of a subjugated group, yet be determined under certain conditions to continue to play the role of a subject group. One is continually passing from one type of group to the other. Subject groups are continually deriving from subjugated groups through a rupture of the latter, they mobilize desire, and always cut its flows again further on, overcoming the limit, bringing the social machines back to the elementary forces of desire that form them. But inversely, they are also continually closing up again, remodeling themselves in the image of subjugated groups, re-establishing interior limits, reforming a great break that the flows will not pass through or overcome, subordinating the desiring machines to the repressive aggregate that they constitute on a large scale. There is a speed of subjugation that is opposed to the coefficients of transversally. And what revolution is not tempted to turn against its subject groups, stigmatized as anarchistic or irresponsible, and to liquidate them. How do we combat the deadly inclination that makes a group pass from its revolutionary libidinal investments to revolutionary investments that are simply preconscious investments or investments of interest, than to preconscious investments that are simply reformist? And where do we even situate such and such a group? Did it ever have revolutionary unconscious investments? The surrealist group, for example, with its fantastic subjugation, its narcissism, and its superego. It can happen that one lone man functions as a flow skis, as a subject group, through a break with the subjugated group from which he excludes himself or is excluded, are taught the schizo. And where do we situate the psychoanalytic group within this complexity of social investments? Every time we wonder when it started going bad, it is always necessary to trace further back in time. Freud as the group superego, an Oedipalizing grandfather, establishing Oedipus as an interior limit, with all kinds of little narcissuses around, and Reich the marginal, plotting a tangent of deterritorialization, causing the flows of desire to circulate, smashing the limit, breaching the wall. But it is not just a matter of literature or even psychoanalysis. It is a matter of politics though not, 
as we shall see, of a program. The task of schizoanalysis is therefore to reach the investments of unconscious desire of the social field, insofar as they are differentiated from the preconscious investments of interest, and insofar as they are not merely capable of counteracting them, but also of coexisting with them in opposite modes. In the generation gap conflict we hear old people reproach the young, in the most malicious way, for putting their desires, a car, credit, a loan, girl-boy relationships, ahead of their interests, work, savings, a good marriage. But what appears to other people as raw desire still contains complexes of desire and interest, and a mixture of forms of desire and of interest that are specifically reactionary and vaguely revolutionary. The situation is completely muddled. It seems that schizoanalysis can make use only of indices the machinic indices in order to discern, at the level of groups or individuals, the libidinal investments of the social field. Now in this respect it is sexuality that constitutes the indices. Not that the revolutionary capacity can be evaluated in terms of the objects, the aims, or the sources of the sexual drives animating an individual or a group, assuredly perversions, and even sexual emancipation, give no privilege as long as sexuality remains confined within the framework of the dirty little secret. It is in vain that the secret is published, that one demands one's right to be heard, it can even be disinfected, treated in a psychoanalytic or scientific manner, yet thereby one stands a greater chance of killing desire, or of inventing forms of liberation for it drearier than the most repressive prison as long as one has not succeeded in rescuing sexuality from the category of secrets, even if public, even if disinfected, i.e., as long as it has not been rescued from the Oedipal narcissistic origin imposed on it as the lie under which it can merely become cynical, shameful, and mortified. It is a lie to claim to liberate sexuality, and to demand its rights to objects, aims, and sources, all the while maintaining the corresponding flows within the limits of an Oedipal code, conflict, regression, resolution, sublimation of Oedipus, and while continuing to impose a familialist and masturbatory form or motivation on it that makes any perspective of liberation futile in advance. For example, no gay liberation movement is possible as long as homosexuality is caught up in a relation of exclusive disjunction with heterosexuality, a relation that ascribes them both to a common edible and castrating stock, charged with ensuring only their differentiation in two non-communicating series, instead of bringing to light their reciprocal inclusion and their transverse communication in the decoded flows of desire, included disjunctions, local connections, nomadic conjunctions. In short, sexual repression, more insistent than ever, will survive all the publications, demonstrations, emancipations, and protests concerning the liberty of sexual objects, sources, and aims, as long as sexuality is kept consciously or not within narcissistic, edible, and castrating coordinates that are enough to ensure the triumph of the most rigorous censors, the grey gentleman mentioned by Lawrence. Lawrence shows in a profound way that sexuality, including chastity, is a matter of flows, an infinity of different and even contrary flows. Everything depends on the way in which these flows whatever their object, source, and aim are coded and broken according to uniform figures, or on the contrary taken up in chains of decoding that resect them according to mobile and non-figurative points, the flows schizes. 
Lawrence attacks the poverty of the immutable identical images, the figurative roles that are so many tourniquets cutting off the flows of sexuality, fiancé, mistress, wife, mother one could just as easily add homosexuals, heterosexuals, etc. All these roles are distributed by the Oedipal Triangle, father-mother-me, a representative ego thought to be defined in terms of the father-mother representations, by fixation, regression, assumption, sublimation, and all of that according to what? Rule. The law of the great phallus that no one possesses, the despotic signifier prompting the most miserable struggle, a common absence for all the reciprocal exclusions where the flows dry up, drained by bad conscience and ressentiment. Sticking a woman on a pedestal, or the reverse, sticking her beneath notice, or making a model housewife of her, or a model mother, or a model helpmeet. All mere devices for avoiding any contact with her. A woman is not a model anything. She is not even a distinct and definite personality. A woman is a strange soft vibration on the air, going forth unknown and unconscious, and seeking a vibration of response. Or else she is a discordant, jarring, painful vibration, going forth and hurting everyone within range. And a man the same 41. Let's not be too quick to make light of the pantheism of flows present in such texts as this, it is not easy to deedipalize even nature, even landscapes, to the extent that Lawrence could. The fundamental difference between psychoanalysis and schizoanalysis is the following, schizoanalysis attains a non-figurative and non-symbolic unconscious, a pure abstract figural dimension, abstract in the sense of abstract painting, flows schizes or real desire, apprehended below the minimum conditions of identity. What does psychoanalysis do, and first of all what does Freud do, if not maintain sexuality under the morbid yoke of the little secret, while finding medical means for rendering it public, for making it into an open secret, the analytic Oedipus. We are told, see here, it's quite normal, everybody's like that, but one continues to embrace the same humiliating and degrading conception of sexuality, the same figurative conception as the censors. It is certain that psychoanalysis has not made its pictorial revolution. There is a hypothesis dear to Freud, the libido does not invest the social field as such except on condition that it be desexualized and sublimated. If he holds so closely to this hypothesis, it is because he wants above all to keep sexuality in the limited framework of Narcissus and Oedipus, the ego, and the family. Consequently, every sexual libidinal investment having a social dimension seems to him to testify to a pathogenic state, a fixation in Narcissism, or a regression to Oedipus and to the pre-Oedipal stages, by means of which homosexuality will be explained as a reinforced drive, and paranoia as a means of defense. Point 42 We have seen on the contrary that what the libido invested, through its loves and sexuality, was the social field itself in its economic, political, historical, racial, and cultural determinations, in delirium the libido is continually recreating history, continents, kingdoms, races, and cultures. Not that it is advisable to put historical representations in the place of the familial representations of the Freudian unconscious, or even the archetypes of a collective unconscious. It is merely a question of ascertaining that our choices in matters of love are at the crossroads of vibrations, 
which is to say that they express connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions of flows that cross through a society, entering and leaving it, linking it up with other societies, ancient or contemporary, remote or vanished, dead or yet to be born. Africa's and Orient's, always following the underground thread of the libido. Not geohistorical figures or statues, although our apprenticeship is more readily accomplished with these figures, with books, histories, and reproductions, than with our mommy. But flows and codes of socius that do not portray anything, that merely designate zones of libidinal intensity on the body without organs, and that are emitted, captured, intercepted by the being that we are then determined to love, like a point sign, a singular point in the entire network of the intensive body that responds to history, that vibrates with it. Never was Freud more adventurous than in Gradova. In short, our libidinal investments of the social field, reactionary or revolutionary, are so well hidden, so unconscious, so well masked by the preconscious investments, that they appear only in our sexual choices of lovers. A love is not reactionary or revolutionary, but it is the index of the reactionary or revolutionary character of the social investments of the libido. The desiring sexual relationships of man and woman, or of man and man, or woman and woman, are the index of social relationships between people. Love and sexuality are the exponents or the indicators, this time unconscious, of the mitonal investments of the social held. Every loved or desired being serves as a collective agent of enunciation. And it is certainly not, as Freud believed, the libido that must be desexualized and sublimated in order to invest society and its flows, on the contrary, it is love, desire, and their flows that manifest the directly social character of the non-sublimated libido and its sexual investments. For those looking for a thesis topic on psychoanalysis, one should not suggest vast considerations on analytic epistemology, but modest and rigorous topics such as the theory of maids or domestic servants in Freud's thought. There are some real indices in such areas. On the subject of maids who are present everywhere in the cases studied by Freud there occurs an exemplary hesitation in Freudian thought, a hesitation too quickly resolved in favor of what was to become a dogma of psychoanalysis. Philippe Girard, in unpublished remarks that seem to us to have a wide application, situates the problem at several levels. In the first place, Freud discovers his own Oedipus in a complex social context that brings into play the older half-brother from the rich side of the family, and the thievish maid as the poor woman. Secondly, the familial romance and fantasy activity in general will be presented by Freud as a veritable drift of the social field, where one substitutes persons of a higher or lower rank for the parents, the son of a princess kidnapped by gypsies, or the son of a poor man taken in by bourgeois, Oedipus was already doing this when he claimed a low birth of servant parents. Thirdly, the rat man not only installs his neurosis in a social field determined from one end to the other as military, he not only makes it revolve around a form of torture originating in the Orient, but also in this very field he causes his neurosis to oscillate between two poles constituted by the rich woman and the poor woman, under the effect of a strange unconscious communication with the unconscious of the father. Lakin was the first to emphasize these themes, which were enough to challenge the whole of Oedipus, 
and he shows the existence of a social complex where the subject at times attempts to assume his own role but at the price of a splitting of the sexual object into a rich woman and a poor woman and at other times ensures the unity of the object, but this time at the price of a splitting of his own social function at the other extremity of the chain. Fourthly, the wolfman demonstrates a marked taste for the poor woman, the peasant girl on all fours washing some clothes, or the servant scrubbing the floor. Point 43. The fundamental problem with regard to these texts is the following, must we see, in all these sexual social investments of the libido and these object choices, mere dependences of a familial Oedipus? Must we save Oedipus at all costs by interpreting these investments and object choices as defenses against incest? Thus the familial romance, or Oedipus's own wish to have been born of poor parents who would cleanse him of his crime. Must these be understood as compromises and substitutes for incest? Thus in the wolf man, the peasant girl as a substitute for the sister, having the same name as she, or the girl on hands and knees, working, as a substitute for the mother surprised in the coitus scene, and in the rat man, the disguised repetition of the paternal situation, making it possible to enrich or impregnate Oedipus with a fourth symbolic term charged with accounting for the splittings through which the libido invests the social field. Freud makes a firm choice of this last direction, all the more firm in that, according to his own confession, he wants to set things straight with Jung and Adler. And after having ascertained in the wolf-man case the existence of an intention of debasing the woman as love object, he concludes that it is merely a matter of a rationalization, and that the true underlying determination almost always leads us back to the sister, to the mommy, considered as the only purely erotic motives. Taking up the eternal refrain of Oedipus, the eternal lullaby, he writes, a child pays no regard to social distinctions, which have little meaning for it as yet, and it classes people of inferior rank with its parents if they love it as its parents do. 44. We always fall back into the false alternative where Freud was led by Oedipus, and then confirmed in this position by his controversy with Adler and Jung, either, he says, you will abandon the sexual position of the libido in favor of an individual and social will to power, or in favor of a prehistoric collective unconscious or you will recognize Oedipus, making of it the sexual abode of the libido, and you will make daddy-mommy into the purely erotic motive. Oedipus the touchstone of the pure psychoanalyst, on which to sharpen the sacred blade of a successful castration. Yet what was the other direction, glimpsed for a moment by Freud apropos of the familial romance, before the Oedipal trapdoor slams shut? It is the direction rediscovered, at least hypothetically, by Philippe Girard, there is no family where vacuoles are not arranged, and where extrafamilial breaks are not manifest, by means of which the libido is engulfed in order to sexually invest the non-familial i.e., the other class as determined under the empirical rubrics of the richest and the poorest, and sometimes both at once. Wouldn't the great other, indispensable to the position of desire, be the social other, social difference apprehended and invested as the non-family within the family itself? The other class is by no means grasped by the libido as a magnified or impoverished image of the mother, but as the foreign, the non-mother, the non-father, the non-family, the index of what is non-human in sex, and without which the libido would not assemble its desiring machines. Class struggle goes to the heart of the ordeal of desire. 
The familial romance is not a derivative of Oedipus, Oedipus is a drift of the familial romance, and thereby of the social field. It is not a question of denying the importance of parental coitus, and the position of the mother, but when this position makes the mother resemble a floor washer, or an animal, what authorizes Freud to say that the animal or the maid stand for the mother, independently of the social or generic differences, instead of concluding that the mother also functions as something other than the mother, and gives rise in the child's libido to an entire differentiated social investment at the same time. As she opens the way to a relation with the non-human sex. For whether the mother works or not, whether the mother is from a richer or poorer background than the father, etc., has to do with breaks and flows that traverse the family, but that overreach it on all sides and are not familial.